Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, a correspondent for Vice News and a co-host of the excellent Fifth Column Podcast, Michael Moynihan is here. This is episode 30. On the origins of the Fifth Column Podcast, protections of some of the most powerful in the media, geographic bias, Joy Reid, Jill Abramson, and more. We start with COVID coverage as 2021 comes to an end. I wanted to start with uh, COVID because it does seem we've seen a little bit of a shift recently um, because a lot of people in New York City in the media are like uh, getting COVID. Now, yeah, and, and these are people that that you know, for all intents and purposes are vaxxed and boosted and taking yeah. proper precautions and really thinking of themselves as the kind of people who would not get COVID, but it's still obviously possible. And you know, most of them are are recovering fine. But we've seen a little bit of a shift, and it, and it got me thinking of of the types of coverage we've seen um, leading up to this. You know, Thanksgiving mm-hmm. and Christmas, and the the way. You know the CNNs and the MSNBCs in the world that have had on these these doctors who have said, "Well, you know, you can have a Christmas as long as everyone's vaccinated and masked and properly." So, and and thinking that that the people beyond these newsrooms are actually still paying attention to what these people are saying, and and I know with the work that you've done, you're all across the country, you know, with mm-hmm. with Vice News and talking to real mm-hmm. Americans, whatever that means. Um, yeah, yeah. But I wonder what you've seen your in your own you know, personal experience with COVID over 2021 and the way different people are sort of dealing with it. You know, there's so much to to chew on there. I mean, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, I mean, I did, <clears throat> I did a piece for Showtime um, because I was the only one that was willing to go out, actually, um, really? despite the fact that my entire crew was, was they looked like they were at a rubber uh, ball or something. They were completely swaddled in, you know, masks and gloves. And, you know, I did a little bit of that, too. And I don't blame them at all because there's a, a lack of information and a an overabundance of fear at the, at the, at the beginning, which is sure. understandable. Um, but as we went out, I remember being in Kenosha the day after the, the Rittenhouse thing. And going into a bar and being with people um, from different media organizations, too, that wouldn't go in with me because nobody was masked. And I was like, you know what? It's like you don't say I'm not going to go to Gaza because I might get hit by a rocket. It's like that's the job. You just got to talk to people and you got to go out there and do it. And, you know, the funny thing is, is that it, it was one of the things for me as a reporter going into like uh Trump spaces, shall we say, Trump rallies, et cetera, was that wearing a mask was just indicating to everybody that you were uh, somebody from the media. <laughs> you, know? you couldn't blend in with a mask on. So I was like, screw it. I'm going to go do it. And, um, you know, and I, th- I was fairly certain that I had COVID early on before there was, you know, testing or antibody testing or anything like that, like in the very, very first wave in New York. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, there was the crazy people on one end, um, the person I interviewed who said they didn't want to be next to me if I'd been vaccinated because of vaccine shedding, which actually is incidentally a real thing in certain contexts, but not with mRNA vaccines, but um, vaccine shedding. I was actually the danger to him. Like you are going to, you're contagious. Yes, I was, I was vaccine contagious, which is one of those things that I don't know where it was from. I mean, I don't, I don't even think on the sort of OAN uh, uh, spectrum that that was even being, being talked no. about. Yeah, I don't think so, Robert Kennedy has a uh, has that in his book. Yeah, uh, yeah, but. yeah. Robert, Robert Kennedy is not uh, is not doing that. Who obviously um, you saw the news had a party in which everyone had to be vaxxed, which then he blamed on Larry David's fake wife uh, Cheryl Hines, which I think who is his real wife. wife which I, who's I, his real I, wife? Ah, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, he married well. She did not. Um, you know, it's the allure of uh, Camelot marrying to that family. Despite the guys, a total crackpot. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, oh, talking to people, you know, there was a certain amount of common sense involved with people that I didn't actually see amongst people that were more quote unquote on paper educated and uh, you know more urbane and urban too. Yeah, um, that was uh, just people were like, look, I understand the risks. I'm young, like that kind of thing, which is what I would say. You know. And I get that there's a different thing with cities because it's 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 denser. 
And, you know, if you are young and you're going to survive it, you might pass it off to somebody who wouldn't or who might then pass it off to somebody and be asymptomatic. Like, I understand all of those concerns, but there was a bit I think that I'm seeing now, as you said, the coverage is slightly different, that is kind of reflective of what I was seeing in the past in, kind of in, in you know, the Midwest and the South and the rest in New York. But that's yeah. kind of said sotto voce. It's not said directly to you. It's said, you know, that this is getting kind of crazy, isn't it, Moynihan? I know that you think this stuff. And I'm like, well, I'm not crazy about it myself. I'm not like a the, the skeptic of all skeptics. I've just been, you know, on our podcast, The Fifth Column, I think we have a really, really good batting average if you go back to our initial skepticism of this stuff. And we were very scared of it. We were, you know, initially not getting together to record um, that didn't last very long, by the way, <laughs> we, were, we were then getting together and getting drunk pretty quickly to the horror of our girlfriends and wives and things. But, uh, but, um, we're like, no, 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 we know what we're doing here <laughs> when we absolutely didn't. But yeah, so at the very, very beginning, I think that, you know, looking at the numbers from Sweden, for instance, everybody's focused on Sweden. And I lived in Sweden for a number of years. My daughter is a Swedish citizen, um, has a Swedish passport. Um, I speak Swedish. And uh, I was visiting the Swedish Ministry of Health website. And they, the one thing the Swedes are very, very good at is data. They, love, they, have, they collect data on everything and they do a very good job of it. And so initially I started looking at these numbers and I was like, wait, what is going on here? Is it actually true that, you know, at that point, 70% of the people dying are over 80? No, yeah. that can't be true. 75 or over 80, 80% or over 80. And then you realize between 70 and 95 made up almost all the deaths. And I was like, oh, so I know what is happening here almost immediately, which is the fallacy that is often engaged in by public health officials is that an overabundance of caution is a good thing. It is not a good thing because what it does is it makes people distrust you when they say the sky is falling Everything is going to end horribly. And you see this most um, obviously manifested down Omicron, where um, I've had I've talked to people who are not involved in what we do in news and media, and they are paranoid. And I'm like, yeah. where the I don't can I not do he's do you swear in this podcast or not? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Okay. I was like, where the fuck do you get this information from? And they're like, it's the headline in New York Times. And I, oh Lord, nobody reads beyond the headline. But even yeah. if you do in the head, in the New York Times, for instance, um, where David Leonhardt, by the way, has been fantastic. He's been really, really, really good. And, and one of it's, the rare, yeah. Yeah. And it's exactly. And I don't <laughs> want to uh, besmirch all of them because once in a while you read a lot of weirdo stuff in there. But you know, the Wall Street Journal's been the same way. It is really that it's not, it's, they're not lying to you. It's a kind of bias by omission. So people are not talking about deaths. How many people have died of Omicron? How many do we know have died? And I think the, the number that we have now of what we know is zero. Yeah, it could I, be higher. I, I, I wait, no hold idea. on. Oh, you do? You have numbers I read now. an article yesterday. Oh, goodness. It said we have our first Omicron death. And oh, wow. it was uh, someone with, uh, who was immunocompromised who okay. had Omicron uh, when they died. Now, we don't know exactly <laughs> any more than that, but that that is, this is we're recording this. Uh, you know, on <laughs> this reminds me, by the way, of one of the most hilariously offensive uh, uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm episodes where somebody says that his friend died on 9-11 and <laughs> it turns out that he was hit by a cab uptown right. on 9-11. And yeah. it's like the person who died with Omicron, I'm like wondering if they, you know, fell off a subway platform, right. but they had Omicron. I mean, who exactly. knows at this point? Yeah, this was like the last thing that, that they got. No, I, I think that's totally true. And, and, you know, in the same way that it's the headline the New York Times, it's the yeah. it's the Chiron on CNN, and and yeah, I think the argument that would be made, and I've heard from from friends of mine, is you know why not? Like, what's is better to be safe than sorry, or or you know what's yeah. the or or you know like what's the worst that can happen? It's you know why yeah. why not have an extra level level of precaution? But no, I, I think to, to your point, you know, not only does it feel like it, it, it unnecessarily makes certain people very anxious and cautious and then have them lashing out. But it also, when it turns out to not be true, um, as yeah. we've seen with a lot of it, I think about last year with, you know, the shaming people on beaches uh, because, you know, that was my favorite, unmasked, yeah. yeah, unmasked people on beaches. <laughs> Unbelievable. And, and, and then you've, you, you start to learn more about it, the, the science, you know, trusting the science and you see that you were essentially lied to. And, and that's, a, I feel like that, that really has, 
we're going to come out of this with with a, a big distrust in the media that's that's really earned yeah. based on this this overabundance of caution that they've they've kind of fed their their public and their audience. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, there is there are consequences to constantly being overly cautious. I mean, if you look at times in history when when people weren't overly cautious about certain aspects of life, you know, driving, for instance, you know, seatbelts and airbags. And like, when I was really young, I mean, I think about this now, it's like, I'm in the car with my mother and like, she's smoking and the, <laughs> there's no seatbelts. And it's like probably a Corvair that could catch fire if it drove by a spark or something. But, you know, and now we're in this overly cautious and, you know, overabundance of cautious uh, period in American history. And I find this is like, you know, being a negative thing in so many ways. I mean, if you have children, um, you've gone through the experience of uh, your wife, your partner, whatever, uh, being pregnant and saying, I'm not going to eat a piece of sushi. Because apparently the entire country of Japan stops eating sushi when they get pregnant. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like, yeah, yeah, but it's an overabundance of caution. It cannot hurt to not eat this piece of sushi because my kid could, might be a demented criminal because yeah. I had this very delicious roll. <laughs> That's the kind of instinct that people have. It's, it's, you know, why not? Well, the why not thing is actually rather simple to answer is the why not is that it creates this habit where when you do this, not everyone is doing this out of an overabundance of caution. They start thinking that this is actually true. This is the thing, you know, I know that the sushi poisons you. I know that, you know, Omicron is just as deadly or whatever, because I know about the previous iterations of this disease, 800,000 people die. So when I see a headline that says Omicron, you know, a variation of spike proteins and, you know, coronavirus, et cetera, et cetera, is spreading at 70 times the rate, is sweeping the nation like the Beatles did in 1963. <laughs> it is going everywhere. What is the next logical step as a cautious person that it's, that it's COVID and it's spreading fast? Get in the house. Right. And that is what is happening. Like my favorite thing of all time is that these people that have been thumbing their nose at anybody who has even moderate skepticism about this stuff, not even, I'm like, I'm double vaccinated. I have a booster lined up. I'm sort of immunocompromised in that sense where I don't think it's real because I'm a type one diabetic, but it's actually type two people. Then that's okay. just because they're kind of overweight. Um, and we don't consider them real diabetics anyway. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, like I am in this position where I follow those rules. I am not complaining about this stuff. I think it's a great thing to be vaccinated. I know Megan, um, uh, Kelly, um, you know, who you work with. Uh, I'm vaccinated. I, uh, yeah, yeah. It is, it, the, the data is clear. I mean, we're talking about data here when we talk about Omicron and the data is also clear that you're not going to be hospitalized if you are vaccinated. And the kind of function of the vaccine here, if you read about it, it makes perfect sense of why you wouldn't be hospitalized. Right. But, um, you know, I, I, I do all that stuff and I'm, you know, perfectly willing to do it. But I love the BuzzFeed thing. Did you see this BuzzFeed and they had a holiday party? Oh, yeah. And like, everyone got Omicron and they right. were like, we are just, we're bear. boosted. <laughs> everyone is boosted. I'm like that. Yeah, you're, you're going to be fine. You're just going to go home and you're going to eat ice cream. And you're going to watch that new shitty version of uh, Sex in the City. Right. And you're going to be fine in two days. And But you'll have like a war medal that you got Omicron before. Christmas. Yeah. And and frankly, it's that sort of lived experience that I, I actually hope has this positive effect in the end. Because Me too. I, I agree with you. Me too. Uh, I'm, if, if, the, if, if the media coverage for the last almost two years of this had been, look, we don't really know, you know, let's be skeptical. Yeah. Let's, let's see what, you know, maybe take extra precautions, but it's the certainty and then yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it coming across wrong that I, that I feel like had a, had a big issue. Next up, what Michael learned about Donald Trump in 2021 while road tripping across Texas for Vice News earlier this year. I mentioned you traveling around the country um, for Vice News. Yeah, uh, I, I thought you did a piece, uh, you know, visiting uh, uh, myself here in Texas, um, mm -hmm. spanning the, yeah, talking to Trump supporters across the country, which yeah, yeah. started in South Padre Island, which I think it is did. The Vice News. <laughs> yes, it was. Road trip. Yeah, um, it was but no, I, I saw my first live wet T-shirt contest. I thought that only happened in '80s movies, but <laughs> I was in first South ever. Padre <laughs> Island, it is real. Yeah, this is yeah. No, no, I mean that is <laughs> Texas. It's I, I've only been here eight years, um, but it, it, it's a it's a big state. There's a yeah, very yeah, there's yeah, a yeah, bunch yeah. of different kinds of Texas. Um, yeah. uh, so, but anyway, no, I I, I think 
that that's, you know, it's an interesting way of doing it. I know, you know, you've done a couple of reports. That one was, was a great piece that people can find. It's like 40 minutes. It's almost a documentary yeah, yeah, of thanks. the state of Trump supporters in 2021. Yeah. And I, and I wonder what you learned from that, because it does seem that in the same way that, you know, we've got COVID certainty on one side, we've got this sort of, you know, Trump election certainty on the other side. Yeah, yeah, um, sure. And, and I'm, I'm curious because you, it, it was a great piece that you talked to uh, Hispanic Trump supporters and you talked yeah. to you know, young and old. What did you learn about that? And what do you think that, that drives us um, as the media continues covering Trump so vividly? Uh, yeah. What do you see about the people that, that maybe are, are, you know, being ignored? It's funny because you said I talked to Hispanic Trump supporters, which I did. Um, but I talked to Hispanic people, and they they were Trump supporters. They just that have, was yeah. the amazing. I, no, I was not like on a mission to right. find these people. I mean, we did call some um, uh, Republicans. I mean, in Star County, which was one of those counties, a very small county, but um, you know, a border county that uh, swung pretty hard in the other direction, which had you know gone very very heavily for uh, Hillary Clinton, and then had swung. To it went, you know, Biden still won the county, but it was a very narrow margin, like it, a shocking, shocking reversal. Forty points, something like that. Forty, yeah, exactly. Yeah. To then to like three or something. But um, you know, the interesting thing about that, there was so much that I learned on that trip, and I'll say a couple things about it. Was that you know, it's impossible to debate with diehard Trump supporters about the direction of the Republican Party. Um, diehard supporters that I met that believed the election stuff. And I think there's a couple types of people in the way they talk about the election stuff. And I think they both have the same kind of attitude about it, that it's bullshit. Sorry to say, it's not true. The idea that Trump, I mean, look, every Republican that I've ever talked to on the Hill believes the same thing. Every single one. I, I cannot find someone who doesn't believe this. Um, and then there's the other people that have kind of, you know, justifiably weaponized this and said, this is the state of the Republican Party. Everybody's a crackpot. Now, I'm not one of those people, but, you know, I did talk to these people and it was a really, really hard conversation to have because when you said like, look, you have a president that won one term and, you know, the incumbent president losing the second term. I get I get uh, COVID, but, you know, was had a pretty great economy before, you know, was running the tables and Congress, Senate, you know, uh, Supreme Court picks, et cetera. And he lost. And they said, well, he didn't lose. And so then it's the end of the conversation, right? You can't go any further about what is the appropriate direction of the party if this man maybe lost and alienated so many moderates, like suburban kind of moderates, which, which he did. I mean, the numbers of this are, are, are pretty clear. Um, so that was the first thing that, that I hadn't really anticipated that because I hadn't really thought it through that that actually shuts down a lot of conversation. You're like, yeah. okay, so what's the next question? They're like, you're living on a different planet. That actually is not, uh, that's not true. The, the, the election was won by Trump. So next question, please. Uh, and then the other thing was, um, and this is really fascinating because we all know this, but the consistency of it is so fascinating to me because there was another poll recently about Hispanics and how the lurch towards conservatism and towards the Republican Party. And you know what's funny about it? Every time the poll comes out, it's a poll. It's a boring poll. You know why? Because we've seen this bloody poll a million times. It's boring. It gets top banner headlines every time. Why? Because the people creating those headlines and writing about it are shocked because they know nothing about the country. These are the people that say Latinx when 95, 96% of, of Hispanics have no idea either what that means or think it's dumb. Yeah. You're like, are, are yeah. you kidding me? Latinx? I had, I did a piece in Florida, like a full uh, uh, story in Florida and was with the uh, Cubanos con Biden, the uh, Cubans for Biden, which was kind of an interesting kind of thing. So, so many Trump supporters. And they were great people. They were really interesting. And they were like kind of skeptical of liberals too, but they were like pretty liberal second generation. And I said to the woman, I was like, uh, Latinx. And she's like, Latinx? It's ridiculous. <laughs> and I was like, you think so? And she was like the most lefty of the bunch. Yeah. And she was like, this is actually embarrassing. And she was like, it's you white people that create this stuff. And I was like, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's not even us white people. It's white people in New York City. I really, I apologize for doing this. But the yeah. consistency in that, we used to say this thing about Hispanic voters, that they are Catholics. So therefore, blah, 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 their natural constituency of the Republican Party, which Republicans could never really convert in a lot of ways. Uh, George W. Bush did, by the way, when he was governor of Texas. But... Um, 
It's so much deeper than that. And one of the things that I found fascinating about it is that the, the Latinx thing, the headline thing, is a one way of saying something that we don't say out loud uh, in a real obvious way, is that people in the media think Latinos, quote unquote, are all the same. Yeah. And guess what? It's the same thing as saying somebody from Croatia has the same views as somebody in Belgium, right? They're both white. They're both from the same continent. Like, are you serious? The people, Mexican-Americans in Star County, uh, you know, they're like, we don't really like Hondurans. <laughs> you know? Like, we don't want these people. They're the people that come and they come in and they believe in the American dream because it's treated them well, despite the fact that it's a poor county, it's better from where they came from, and they want to, to bring the drawbridge up behind them. That's not uncommon. It's not specific to Latinos. It's, it was very true in America in the 19th century. I mean, you know, immigrants from Italy and Germany saying like, all right, let's limit immigration. I mean, the people that came and wanted to limit immigration in America were, of course, first or second generation yeah, immigrants. This is immigrants. not surprising, you know? Yeah, well, it, it gets at a point, honestly, I feel like there, there's a lot of talk about bias uh, in the media yeah. and it does feel like a geographic bias more 100%. than anything else. It's yes. a huge element of it, right? You, if you don't know people that have a, a different sort of you know view and a, 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 a diversity of thought, you know, I, I here in Dallas, you know, Dallas is a pretty 50, 50 red, blue city, but you know, yeah. I know people who are gay and married and Trump supporters or people who yeah. voted for Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and have lots of guns and are like, you know, big second oh amendment. God, people. Yeah. people are just a lot more messy. And then I yeah. think are being portrayed in the punditry on, on cable news. And so, so that I think leads to that a lot as well. Um, I mean, I, I guess this is a good, a good way to get to the fifth column, because I do think yeah. that like, we're missing a lot in the media space. Um, and, and maybe, you know, traditional media, legacy media doesn't allow for the sort of nuanced conversations that yeah. you all have that, that I think, you know, make your podcast such a, a must listen. Coming up, the origins of the fifth column and the importance of not taking any of this, especially ourselves, too seriously. That's next. But first, Prince Harry is a literal prince, or at least he was. I'm not really up with all my royal trivia. Either way, a life of immense privilege has preceded whatever pseudo-tech job he's claiming to have now as something called a chief impact officer of something called Better Up. Anyway, now Fast Company has profiled and interviewed Prince Harry about his advice about work, and he's got some very important tips for you. The headline reads, Prince Harry says quitting can be good for your mental health. Quit! says Prince Harry. Yes, Prince Harry has learned from impacting at his mental health company that thanks to the pandemic, maybe it's a good idea to just quit your job. With self-awareness comes the need for change, he said. Many people around the world have been stuck in jobs that didn't bring them joy, and now they're putting their mental health and happiness first. That is something to be celebrated. For the prince, that job was being a prince. Now he's a CIO at BetterUp, and it is bringing him such joy. Are you celebrating with him? What are we doing here, Fast Company? Are you so thirsty for page views? Is it just that your Prince Harry stands? Perhaps this is not the best advice and not the best advice giver for our current 2021 situation. More with Michael coming up, but first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that formed the greatest country on the planet. The First is free, free speech, free ideas, free TV. You can watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, back to Michael Moynihan. Was that something that sort of a conscious decision? Like there's a, there, there's a hole here and someone needs to fill it. I mean, in a way, possibly, um, I'm trying to think back to that time. I mean, I, it's just kind of a, it's kind of who we are. And I think it's kind of who, why we like each other is that, you know, we're not ideologues in any particular way. I mean, we, we list in certain directions on certain issues, but we kind of, the only thing that we ever sort of consciously said, and I've never actually said this publicly, is we really tried to avoid using the word libertarian because that gets to a whole set of views and, and like, you know, pigeonholing yourself. And it's, I think, because not a lot of us really, you know, we don't really line up in some ways uh, with a lot of this stuff. And we're just kind of like this new, maybe hybrid of libertarian, 
like uh, cosmopolitan, you know, liberal. I don't know what the, what the insult would be. Uh, conservative. I mean, we kind of go in a lot of different directions. And I think that the main thing with the podcast was that it's not dreary. It's not angry. It's a joyous kind of thing. We started early on. It was actually, it was actually, uh, you know, all the things that we had as like segments early on just came you know, naturally during the podcast. And for a while, and we're trying to revive it now, we had a thing called uh, Some Idiot Wrote This. And it was just, the problem was it's too many idiots and we couldn't keep up. People would send them and I was like, yeah, yeah." it's like, it was literally like, became like the internet. I was like, I don't really, at this point, we should have a a segment called A Sensible Person Wrote This because there's so little of it. But we would do this Some Idiot Wrote This. Yeah. yeah. And I remember like one that got a lot of attention and it was, it was, um, a woman at my former employer, the Daily Beast, which really descended into into nuttery after I, I think it was, I think it just was because that I left. As I was say, was it, <laughs> you, you no. leaving in twenty sixteen? Yeah, no, we really yeah. had no. Yeah, I was the bulwark against uh, madness. Now, I probably when Tina Brown left, actually, and John Avalon left, um, John kept a, a pretty sort of John like John really liked a uh, a mix of of, of different politics because he found it interesting. And you know, you know, why limit yourself to half the political population? That was right. uh, something that I agreed with him um, on, and he was always very generous to me too but well, it um, coincided i think with the like the primary the 2016 election right yeah Which that sort of really people crazy but yeah it made everyone crazy it sort of we often uh, you know or the media often pays attention to you know how it made trump people crazy the republican party go a bit mad and get conspiratorial and you know embrace some QAnon type stuff um where anytime that there's a QAnon candidate who's like running eighth in a local um you know school board election gets you know national coverage right is that it made everyone go crazy and it's like the other side went crazy too oh yeah and um and yeah so around the, I, I did this thing with this woman who was like talking i can't remember what it was it was something about um, bias towards tall women or something in a Netflix special. Mm. And I just read it aloud and made fun of it. And it got a very good response, but it was like, it was joking. It was like mean, but not <laughs> evil mean. Like, let's cancel this person. Let's make this person's life miserable. I was just sort of like, what are you doing? Come on. This is the lowest form of journalism. And look, that's what happened. And that's why the, that, you know, Fourth Watch is fantastic. And I, I love the, the email is, is, you know, um, just really encapsulates everything that I believe. So I like, you know, confirmation bias. So yours is a great <laughs> confirmation bias echo chamber email. But, you know, these sorts of things, I mean, Fifth Column became a media podcast because we were so exacerbated by all the stupidity that we saw constantly in people never being called out on it because it's just this echo chamber of stupidity. And, you know, what What it ultimately became was, you know, a media criticism podcast that occasionally had guests and got into politics too. So yeah. not really one thing, but, but that was kind of important to us um, at the beginning because we saw this, this everywhere. I mean, everywhere. And, you know, I'll just say the fun, one final thing about this is that it, there was so much material because... The way journalism changed, people often, you know, have these theories about it. You know, I have them too. Um, and I mean, the most obvious one is that fewer people were buying things, buying newspapers before the, the paywalls, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal were actually working and making money. Right. Um, and the Washington Post, especially. Um, people weren't buying things, but then the news cycle extended. So rather than filing your copy at five and going home, they have these kind of two bell curves that all of a sudden, you know, you know, uh, money is down to the toilet. We're not making anything. And then content has to go up through the roof. So what do you do when content is going, the, the need for it is 24 hours, but you're not having any money. Well, you hire like 22 year olds. And what do 22 year olds in 2015, 16 want to do? They want to tell you that uh, the newest Mission Impossible movie is racist. And I'm like, well, why? I'm like, I don't know, but I saw it and I just didn't feel right. And I'm going to write about this because I don't have to leave the building. Nobody's going to pay. I don't, I can't, no one will pay for me to go anywhere. I don't have any reporting jobs, but I can do what I did in college. We used to just complain about the stuff in college, like student newspaper, but do it for a national publication (laughs) that has millions of readers. And then after a year of that, two years of that became the norm and completely distorted what the media was. I mean, right. I'm not saying that there's some glory days of Walter Cronkite. I don't, I don't believe in that 
kind of thing. I mean, there's some elements that I miss and some some that I don't. But but yeah, it, it became that. And then it and then we had a decided like this is a podcast because yeah. this is so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, so so two things on that. First, first of all, wait, so when did you launch Fifth Column? Uh, early 2016, actually, before okay. we, we I, it's so funny to think we actually launched it in during the Obama administration, which can't possibly be true, but we did. No. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the, the end of the, of the Obama administration. No. Mm. And, uh, I, and I also looked up the fifth column cause I never actually knew what it was, you know, free oh, yeah. but fourth watch is fifth column supporters of an enemy that engage in espionage or sabotage within defense lines or national borders. So I, yeah, behind enemy lines. I mean, it, it came, I like it. I believe from the Spanish civil war, that was, I think the first usage of the Spanish Civil War, when it was, you know, um, I don't know if it was Francoist forces behind nationalist lines or the other way around. But, you know, I think there was a bit of it. It was Catherine Mangu Ward, by the way, the editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine, when we were like, say, we're going to do a podcast. We started pitching our friends for names because yeah. we would just waste money at Del Frisco Steakhouse in Midtown <laughs> using Camille's expense account, nice. um, like trying to figure out names. And then Catherine came up with that. And it felt kind of right because it, it, yeah. we're in Manhattan. <laughs> we're, you know, heterodox people in exactly. We're definitely, but the thing was before we had little fake mustaches on as part of the resistance. And now we're just out there setting off bombs. <laughs> like I was going to say, no, that's the thing though. I, I, I think that, so the two things I want to just bring up about, about the fifth column that, that sort of, and based on what you've, you've said, I, I do think that you guys were, were early in the process of, of something where, you know, and and speaking of your background, I mean, you were really early in things like um, you were involved with like the Everybody Draw Muhammad Day yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, back yeah, in yeah. 2010. Yeah. So there, there's yeah. a sense now, I think, where everyone got very sensitive. And, it, and it's not, you know, you mentioned like the kids who are running the, the newsroom at the New York Times now and other other places. They're obviously very sensitive, but, it, but it, it's across the board. I mean, I, I think a lot of people who talk about snowflakes, um, you know, when they get pushed a certain way on the right, get a, get very uptight and sensitive also. And, yeah. and you guys were very, I think, very early on. Um, and, you know, we've seen the evolution of it in, in the sub stacks and, yeah. you know, the, the, the other sort of pushes in it, even just in the podcast space. Um, but of, of really pushing back against that idea of, of everyone just being so like fucking uptight, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. And no. That out. And, and look, I mean, we do it on both sides. I mean, we've done it a lot towards conservatives recently because we see conservatives becoming what liberals used to be when uh, you saw kind of like media regulation, for instance. I mean, the Hunter Biden thing, which we denounced pretty much every episode when, you know, Twitter was banning right. New York Post's Twitter account, et cetera. And the actual attempt, I mean, that was the attempt to sway the election. I mean, come on. I mean, I saw this from inside newsrooms, people telling me about it. We can't talk about it. We can't, we can't report on it. You know, the, the good thing is that when you're out there, you become kind of the, the, you know, um, the whisperer where people will come and say, Hey, by the way, in my organization, don't tell anyone. I'm like, well, <laughs> they, they know and then I, on, yeah. yeah. And then I go in the fifth column and I'm like, somebody who I can't name told me, that. Right. but, um, yeah, there is an instinct amongst conservatives now to like want to regulate big tech, want to get, you know, the government involved in regulating big tech. Right. I mean, they're common carriers, et cetera. And we've argued very, very hard against that and argued with a lot of conservatives on the show about it and, you know, warn them against like, I mean, look. This was the George W. Bush thing with executive power, right? With, I mean, when executive power accrued in the hands of your president, it was fine. And then what did Obama do? It, it expanded executive power even more, more concentrated power in the executive. Then Trump did the same thing. It's everybody thinks that it's going to stop with their guy. So like the, the media regulation is like, you know, under our watch, let's make sure that Facebook and that like, I mean, Look, the, the, the Facebook has been one of the most amazing things for me in the past couple of years is watching liberals say that because of seven posts <laughs> by seven Russian bots about like, here's a meetup in Duluth for this group that nobody's heard of. It's like, yeah, that was, the, it's not an illegitimate, yeah, it's a, not a, it's an illegitimate presidency. The Russians stolen on Facebook to people saying we're being banned from Facebook. It's like, guys, there are plenty of avenues for getting and disseminating your material. If you get kicked off of Twitter, if you get kicked off of Facebook, you know, I'm sorry to be that old guy and say, just start a new thing. And I get that they have an enormous amount of power, but I am a little concerned about the way conservatives have um, many, not all, many conservatives have reacted 
to, I mean, Tucker, for instance, um, you know, who I've known for a long time and who once told me on camera, oh God, I mean, 2008, how libertarian he was. I was a libertarian. Now he hates libertarians. But, um, but yeah, like people like that just saying like, you know, and I respect them and I get where they're coming from, but I think that they're really, really, really misguided. So that's given us at the fifth column, another, another issue and one that we're actually yeah. pretty united on. Uh, and, and I, and speaking of united, I mean, that, that really is this, this, you know, unity between Elizabeth Warren and Josh Hawley and, oh, 100%. and which, yes. which always for me raises red flags. But, you know, I think a lot of people see that as, Oh, finally we get some tech regulation. No one's really thinking about the long game. No, I, I totally agree. The other thing I want to bring up though, about the fifth column is, um, the way you talk about kind of media criticism and, and the drift that we've seen, but, but also, you know, you were the person who exposed like Jonah Peretti, um, Jonah Peretti. Jonah Lehrer. Jonah Jonah Lehrer. exposed himself by his company going public and we're being worth about 50 cents. (laughs) (laughs) We went public and yes, forget it. Uh, you exposed, uh, uh, Jonah Lehrer, uh, for plagiarism. And then more recently, Jill Abramson's book and Jill Abramson, your former editor of the New York times, Merchants of Truth was her book. Ironic, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you read this long thread, and you you ended, and it was sort of a, a defense because it was about vice in a lot of ways. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, saying that she is, you know, sort of portraying herself as the arbiter of ethics and ex- expertise, and then you know, look what she's she's doing on her end, and and it is. It's those sort of illuminating moments where I think people start to to question a lot because it's like if Jill Abramson is being heralded as, as this person and yet doing this, yeah. you know, what does that say about the state of the New York Times and the broader media landscape? And so she's the editor of the New York Times. It's amazing, right? right? I mean, right. This is not somebody on the metro section. No offense to people in the metro section who are usually more diligent than the people in vaunted positions like uh, editor in chief. But um, yeah, that one was a really interesting one, and it and, and it was so funny. I was accused of of like carrying water for um, my employer, but which wasn't true. By the way, was not true at all. There was not a uniform idea that this was a that this was a great thing for me to do, and I did this on my own and I tweeted it and, you know, deal with the kind of repercussions later. But the funny thing about it is that, you know, and and by the way, her response was really astonishing was that, you know, this was a setup and it was a setup by vice. And, you know, I always think of it as like, you know, if the tobacco companies fund a study about lung cancer and they find that it doesn't, you know, cigarette smoking doesn't cause lung cancer, I don't care. And the reason is, is because it can be 70 studies debunking it. right? Right. Who funds something doesn't matter. Is it falsifiable? So if I worked there or not, didn't make a difference. Did you plagiarize or not? All you have to do is look at these two books. And I was right. You were wrong. So fuck you. So at the end of the, at the, end of the day, I'm like, I, I don't I don't really know what, what the, the beef is. But the, the thing about um, Abramson stuff, I think what I took away from it was how brazen she was about it. I was on um, CNN, on Reliable Sources. Um, you know, and she was on before me and then I met her <laughs> in the studio coming. Or, coming this out. was after the, the, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I was like, I could not believe how little she cared. <laughs> it was amazing. I was like, you know, what do you like? I, I was like, look, I'm, you know, I'm sorry this is happening, but you know, I found the stuff and I'm writing, but, and she was like, oh, you know, it's fine, whatever. And that kind of weird voice that she had. And I was, and then she's like, you know, agreed to come on the podcast, by the way, and then kind of disappeared. Yeah. But she didn't really care. And I'm like, okay, maybe I'm misreading that. Maybe she does care, but she's just kind of moment of like, oh God, my, my, my career is unraveling. But then I realized she had a good reason not to care. Because guess what? She didn't get fired from Harvard where no. she was teaching a course. Her career did not unravel. No, no, they did not pull the book and they didn't pulp the book like they did with Jonah Lehrer's book when I wrote about his book. They pulped that and offered people a, a um, refund if they wanted to bring the book back because it sold a million odd copies. I mean, the grand success of that on my end was um, that it didn't sell any copies. Jill Abramson's book didn't sell any copies. And the reason I wrote that, by the way, was that I was really interested in it because I know that she had talked to a few of my colleagues and people write about Vice, used to write about Vice a lot. And so I said, I know, I mean, I've been affiliated and involved in very different iterations of Vice and I know the story well. I know everybody involved. I mean, it's different now, but I used to know everybody involved. And um, so I read it and I was like, this is really interesting. And I was like, wait, that's not true. Mm, That's definitely not true. 
And then the idea was like, oh, that's what's going on. You're plagiarizing people that are getting things wrong. So the laziness of it. And then when you find out the million plus dollar advance that you got, and then it just makes you mad. It be, you become a populist after that. It's like, honestly, screw you. The right. Harvard lady who grew up in the Upper West Side, who has a New York Times tattoo, by the way. Oh, no, she no, she might have a Times tattoo. She also has a, a tattoo of the old New York uh, subway token for some um, reason. Okay. It sounds like a person you really don't want to, you, you don't want to hang out with. Um, <laughs> you know, lives in the Upper West Side, is this very particular but, person. But beloved. You know, beloved. The, the, the cool kids on Twitter. And you know, so. protected. If you want to see something that'll blow your mind. I think um, it was Jonathan Capehart from the Washington Post, and I think he's an MSNBC contributor. He interviewed her, and it was the most astonishing thing I've ever seen. It was after all this broke, and then he talked about it at the end of this interview. I think it was on C-SPAN or something. And they both like kind of laughed it off. And like, yeah, you know, these people, you know, you write about somebody and they're going to attack you. I'm like, dude, I have nothing to do with vice as an institution, I work there. I don't, and I know you're full of shit. So that was it. But it was, it was interesting to see Jonah was different though, because Jonah was totally destroyed. And that was professional jealousy. And that was because Jonah was making $70,000, a $75,000 a speech, something like that, something very large, that he would do this rote, boring speech over and over again <laughs> to captive audiences that would pay him enormous amounts of money. His columns were enormous. And the second this happened, by the way, he had just signed on as a staff writer at The New Yorker, and everybody was like, get him. Because the, the jealousy of the media class is something that is often underappreciated. And so the downfall of Jonah, which ended up being a chapter in John Ronson's book, uh, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which Jonah and I feature in, and John's an amazing storyteller. Um, and he does a good job on that chapter, actually. But it was the, the, the shaming of him versus the shaming of Jill, who's this kind of vaunted figure. He was like a young upstart who was making too much money, basically. I mean, that's a real simplification, but it's, it's more or less true. The fourth watch lightning round is coming up, but first assessing who gets canceled and who survives in the media and why. Last thing before before the uh, lightning round here, I, it gets at the this point that there, there's not really like a rhyme or reason to it necessarily. Yeah, and no, it's there, totally true. Maybe there is actually, but it, but it, but it, it it's it's not it's not like the the punishment you know literally fits the crime, right? No. I mean, there, there are certain people that are protected that are that are have a, an association with the powerful in the in this current moment, um, and and you know you you look at it across the board. I mean, the Washington Post being owned by you know the world's like richest man or maybe number mm -hmm. two now behind Elon Musk, it's we're in a different media environment and yeah. obviously Twitter plays an element to it also like who is protected and who's not. And, and I, I guess I, I wonder what you think of that in kind of the, the long term. like it, wh what does that do? What is when people see that there's not this clear, okay, this person committed this journalistic, you know, misdeed yeah. and, and what does that do to the industry as a whole? I mean, bias is a curious thing. I mean, it's never as simple as people think it is. I mean, the most, the simplest level people think, Oh, you, um, the part of the company that you work for is owned by um, News Corp. So you get your marching orders from Rupert Murdoch. It's like, he literally doesn't care. Like he has no interest. He probably doesn't yes. even know that he owns part of the place that I work or, or used to. I think he still does. Um, I don't and think it's reflected that, in the coverage of... Uh, <laughs> no, it's definitely not friendly to Rupert Murdoch. Um, you know, that kind of thing is what people who watch like Hollywood movies think that, that, that media bias is like, it's often, often just biased by omission. Um, and also in the case of these things, it's also people defending their friends. That's something that's also underappreciated. Like why does Mike Barnacle still get a seat at the table on morning Joe? He was run out of the Boston globe for making things up and yeah. for plagiarizing from a George Carlin book, not even from some small comedian from one of the most famous stand-ups of the 1970s, 80s. You know, I mean, but he survived, right? I mean, there's a number of these people, there was this sort of sad sign-off of Brian Williams saying, you know, it's, it's not like it was when I was a kid, like what, making things up? That's what <laughs> you were doing too. You yeah. came back. At least the he was making it up on late night shows, but yes. I, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, there's, I mean, that's a slightly different way. He's, he's trying to just impress his friends right. versus like authoritative news coverage. Yeah. But still, I mean, the the standard is, is unevenly applied in trying to figure out a pattern for it. What it ends up doing, if you pay attention, because most people don't, 
about this kind of level of, of kind of granular stuff with the media is that there, there is a conspiracy, but not the one that you think. The conspiracy is to protect your friends, to protect your institution. There is no honesty and honor amongst thieves. And you see people, little people who plagiarize things burn in hell. They never recover, never recover. I have a million examples of this. The big ones, I mean, everyone you can think like Fareed Zakaria. Fareed Zakaria still has a show on CNN. He still contributes to the Washington Post. Is still the kind of doyen of the foreign policy establishment. Yeah, I mean, are you kidding? I mean, if I did that, maybe ten years ago in my career, I think it still would be it would be hugely problematic now. I would never have written again. People right. don't want to touch that toxicity. Like I, they see you, they Google you, and that's the first thing that comes up. I mean, Fred Zakaria. Well, he's Fred Zakaria. He can he can get away with it. The yeah. number of people on the you know, it is a conspiracy of the powerful. It is not something that's necessarily because I mean, Zakaria in the past was considered you know, right leaning in sure. amongst the liberal intelligentsia because he supported the Iraq war, all these things. He was kind of a, you know, not a neocon, but he had sympathies with neoconservatism. And, you know, it wasn't that. I mean, there was a time when people would desperately want to get rid of him. It is a thing about, you know, people talk about like DC cocktail parties. It's it's New York. It's more, it's more of that New York, actually. It's people that like, that run in the same social circles yeah, that parties, protect each yeah. other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's not just plagiarism, right? Like Joy Reid no. can have old comments on a blog that get, uh, you know, unsurfaced and, and be totally fine, but it's someone else yeah. who is not in that position of power, you know, they're screwed. You know, the, so. the, 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 it's an interesting example. Cause I, I mean, the, uh, Northam Reed, this is the, my example is that there's a great, um, takeaway from this lie just lie. You will get out of it if you're a certain type of person, if you're a certain kind of persuasion, ideological persuasion. Joy Reid, what she wrote wasn't a lie. It was an opinion, right? And it was a dubious opinion for particularly for somebody at MSNBC, right? Cop to it. Because you know what people really enjoy? People enjoy people who grow. I've changed my mind, yeah. you know, and, and listeners of the call always make fun of me. Cause I always, um, quote that, that, um, uh, I guess it was Paul Samuelson. I always forget it. Who said, you know, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? I mean, that's kind of, there's something admirable in that. Sure. Yeah. We, re- we created a lie <laughs> and she wasn't even technologically savvy enough to explain how this hack could have happened because they then hacked the internet archive too. So it's bizarre. I mean, in, you know, all of these people, if if you just double down, people, I guess, just say, fine. There's a lesson in this, by the way, one final point, a lesson in this to, uh, to the canceled. Somebody I knew who was unfairly targeted, um, their career has been ruined. They've been completely disappeared. They don't live in New York anymore. They've moved to the middle of the country um, and are working in a totally different industry and lucky to be doing that because if you Google their name, it doesn't, the stuff that comes up isn't good. But I know it to be either not true or much more nuanced. Um, when I was asked, what do you think I should do about this? I said, go on the offensive. Nobody wants an apology. And ap- they don't want your apology. Like that is not like, no, have you ever seen someone say, okay, you're forgiven? No, 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 you're, I get it. You're sorry. Come back into the fold. The point is to destroy you. The point is to humiliate you and make you get to the point of the apology. And there is the Joy Reid lesson in that is that don't apologize. I mean, I say she should apologize because it's just, you know, what, right. how my she instinct should, is. But yeah, yeah. that's but not going to help you. Yeah. No, don't apologize. Barrel ahead. That is the same thing that is true of like, you know, like if Louis C.K. went on an apology tour and said, like, I'm never going to perform again. He's like, no, I'll just do it myself. Right. I'm gonna put my stuff out myself. I'll call the special sorry, address it maybe kind of in a half a sentence and, it, and just move ahead with life. That's what you have to do. And that's the difference between Joy Reid and, and, and Louis is that I don't like Louis didn't do something that should get you fired as a comedian. You know, I mean, no. might be inappropriate, but Joy Reid did something like as a journalist is like, lying about what she wrote is, is, is much more serious, but stand your ground and things go away. That's actually kind of true.
Yeah, you would think. I mean, that's that's what's so bizarre about the media industry as opposed to like any other. Like if you're a plumber, you know, and you, yeah. you screw something up so badly, um, you're going to get like bad Yelp reviews and yeah. you're going to have a hard time finding work. You know, it, yeah. it's, it, there's, the equation's completely different in the media landscape yeah. now. So. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. There's no rhyme or reason to it now. No. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, um, six questions, 60 seconds. Michael, where were you born? Oh, God. Uh, Framingham, Massachusetts. All right. You're a correspondent at Vice News. What's one benefit and one cost of that role? Uh, benefit is that I get to go all sorts of places in the world that I otherwise wouldn't go. The cost is that I get to go to all places uh, around the world where I wouldn't ordinarily go and not see my daughter. Who's someone who's been a mentor for you? Christopher Hitchens. Who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? <laughs> That's a long list. <laughs> um, a person I really like uh, uh, personally, but not professionally. How about I do that? Because sure. there was a guy on the show named Aaron Mate, who is a communist and is a <laughs> lovely, lovely person. And I really enjoy talking to him. But he, I've never met somebody more wrong about things than Aaron Mate. Perfect. All right. Who's one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? Interesting, not getting enough attention. Ooh, this is the lightning part is the, the hard part about this. Give um, a little bit of thought. Uh, you know, I mentioned it before. I think that uh, Dan, David Leonhardt, um, who as an economics correspondent at the Times, I was not a super big fan of, but I think he's been doing honest work on, on COVID. And apparently people at the Times are mad about this. Um, and not getting a ton of attention, but it's really, really good. And he's super fair and not on one uh, side or another. He does a morning newsletter sign up for it. It's really good. Yeah, cosign. I'm a subscriber there. All right, last one. One year from today, what's one prediction for the media? That I won't have a job. <laughs> is oh. that is that it? <laughs> all right. Well, after that, come back on and we'll Yeah, uh, we'll and it's nothing to do with anything. I just think it's all falling apart. You know, <laughs> this is... Um, no, the media is going to be even less trusted uh, in a year from now because they cannot get over their love affair with somebody who they're not in love with but isn't the person that they really weren't in love with. So, or they actually actively hated. So um, that kind of flacking for somebody who's doing a really, really poor job. Every American is noticing 6%, 7% inflation, high gas prices, COVID everywhere. Um, we blamed the previous president for all this stuff. Half of it was rightfully blamed. Um, and when that is no longer a thing, um, people notice. People notice that the media is not saying, you know, Joe Biden said without evidence, they stopped saying that. <laughs> right. That's gone. So yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, the symmetry has never been more clear. No, uh, no. Michael, thanks so much for doing this. That was great. Thank you so much. I love the, uh, the, the newsletter and, uh, the podcast is great now that it's had me on. So <laughs> exactly. terrific. So All right. thanks man. That was great. Thanks buddy. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Michael Moynihan. Go check out the Fifth Column podcast if you don't already. I'm sure you probably already do. Remember, Fourth Watch is not just a podcast. It's also a newsletter. Subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in the show as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And download this podcast. Rate, review, like, follow wherever you get your podcast, Spotify, where I get it, Apple. Next episode, I'll be joined by Leah Finnegan, editor of Gawker. Back soon. Stay safe. Have a happy new year. Talk to you then. <laughs>